1 Samuel 27, verse 1. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish. By the way, Achish is a bad guy. He is the enemy of God. And David lived, King David, the man after God's own heart, lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told, told Saul that David fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I can dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave David Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. That's actually important. We'll come back to that. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, that's a part of Israel, so he's lying. He's saying, I fought my own people. Or against the Negev of whatever that word is. Or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. That is an unpleasant chapter. Most of us can name some of David's sins. Just to make sure you're awake, let me ask you. Name one of David's sins. Murder. What was the other one? Adultery. David had some notorious sins on his resume. It's baffling to me because he is the man clearly indicated by God, this is a man after my own, heart, my own heart. Here's what we need to remember. A godly man or a godly woman is still just a man or a woman. And even the godliest people can have implosions in moments where they give themselves to their flesh. They can make catastrophic decisions. David made some, but we always remember the murder of Uriah because of the adultery David committed with Uriah's wife and he got her pregnant. We always remember that, but very little. That was an instant. That was a, a very short time span. That was about a 60-day time span from David's adultery to the murder of David's uh, uh, Bathsheba's husband. It was about a 60-day time span when that occurred. This time span in David's life is one year and four months. And I'm gonna submit to you through the Bible tonight that during this one year and four months, King David, who wasn't king yet, but he would be king, was living a backslidden life against God for a year and four months. And I'm going to prove that to you out of the scriptures. So you say, well, 
Jeff, what's the big deal? Um, let's say you leave here tonight and you enter into a state of backsliddenness and all the way up to New Year's, you're still backslidden. All the way to Easter of 2021, you're still backslidden. All the way through the summer of 2021, still backslidden. You get into Thanksgiving and harvest time in uh, 2021, the end of the year, you're still backslidden. Christmas 2021, still backslidden. New Year's 2022, still backslidden. And then into, let's just say around Easter, you repent. Think of all that time period. From now until 2022, backslidden. That's what David did. So it is a big deal. And I'm going to submit to you that it's not a rare deal. That even among those of us who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, it is possible to live in a state of backsliddenness, not happily, not fruitfully, not dynamically, but you can exist in a state of backsliddenness against God for long amounts of time. But here's the thing that I want to show you. He will discipline you when you're backslidden. Don't believe any preacher or teacher or any Christian that'll say you can do whatever you want because you prayed that prayer to ask Jesus in your heart and God's fine with whatever you do. He's up there chuckling like an indulgent grandfather. Oh, look at my little kids down there sending their days away. That's not God. He will discipline you, but he will never stop loving you. And when he disciplines you, it's not because he's furious and angry and just waiting to get his hands on you. It's because he knows that your backsliddenness is hurting you. And so he works to bring us out of those states. Now, I don't know what's going on with anybody's life in here and anybody who's going to listen to it wherever this gets streamed, but the reality is, is we, we can't deny the fact that there are times in a Christian's life where he or she can not live up to the calling and the identity that they have in Jesus. And this is that time period for David. And so let's take a look at it. And I'm, the message is just really simple. I'm, I'm calling it what backsliding looks like. Because we know the word, right? To slide back means you're, you're moving away from where you should be. So it's sliding back. You're backing away, in this case, from the Lord, from obedience, from love, from faith. You're just backing away. And I, I'm just an intrigued guy. I'm like, well, why would somebody do that? Why would I ever do that? Why would you ever do that? Well, maybe from David's life, we can, we can connect some of those dots. So let's look at it. So in verses 1 through 7 that we just read, let's go back into those. And I'm going to show you that David was living as a believer. He's a believer, but he's motivated by fear. David enters into a season where he's motivated by fear as a believer. And I'm going to explain why in a minute. This is where we see it kind of begin to come into David's uh, reality. It says, David said in his heart, so David's talking to himself, and here's what he's saying. I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now let's just stop there for a second. What I didn't read to you was chapter 26, but in chapter number 26, we see David once again being chased and hunted down by this wicked king named Saul. And Saul has made it his life's purpose to kill and destroy David because he's intimidated by David. The glory of God has left Saul. The power of God has left Saul. Saul is completely dominated by his flesh. And the Bible says he's also demonized. So Saul's living a really sad reality. But David's got the anointing. And David's got the prophecy on him. And David's got the touch. And David's really beloved by the people. So Saul says, I got to kill this guy because this guy's going to steal my position. And so he's hunting David. And this has been going on for years. David, I want to have a little sympathy for him. David's not had a bad week. This is going on a decade of David being hunted. 
He's living in the wilderness. He's in the, the, the desert. He's got 600 people plus his own family that he's got to take care of. It's more than 600 people. He's got 600 soldiers and their families. So David might very well have 2,000 people that he's having to shepherd around the desert, and they've got nowhere to live. Saul's out to kill him. And finally, David finds Saul on two occasions. The second occasion was in chapter 26, and David could have killed him. Saul was asleep. And David had, a, had took Saul's spear and he had a guy at his right hand saying, David, just let me take that spear and I'll put it right through his chest and you'll be the king. And David said, no, I, I can't do that. I'm going to honor God. So for the second time, David refused to kill Saul. He gets that spear, takes a jug of water, sneaks away, away from Saul where Saul is sleeping. And David gets up on a ledge, uh, maybe a football field away, and he calls out over the ledge, and he calls out to Saul's protective security guard. And he calls him out and he says, hey, everybody wakes up. He's like, I've got your king's spear. I've got this jug of water. Saul, you ought to check out who your bodyguard is. You might want to deal with him because he just let your life come into jeopardy. And Saul looks around. He realizes the spear is gone. The jug of water is gone. He calls out. He goes, is that you, David? And David says, yes, it's me, and I'm showing you once again, I'm not out to kill you. I don't have any ill intent towards you. And Saul makes this statement. He says, David, you're a truer man than me, and from this day forward, I will never seek your life again. David's learned a few things about Saul. Saul's a maniac. Saul's a homicidal, egomaniac. He is not trustworthy, and there was something in that encounter that David opens up in chapter 27. He says, I know Saul's going to kill me. I know he's never going to let me go. Saul had become so big in David's mind and heart that God shrank in David's mind and heart. And that's what fear can do to us. Some of you have had the experience of, you know, somebody that's out gunning for you. Others of you have felt like spiritual warfare has come on you, circumstantial warfare, heartbreak, things that you never asked for crashing in on you. And I'm going to tell you, the stoutest of believers can come into those shaking seasons where they just don't know what to do. Now, when you top all of that with the fact that David doesn't even have a home, he's got nowhere to live. He's living life on the run. And for years and years, this has been going on. And finally, David, it's invisible, but it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be portrayed by these words. He hits this breaking point. And he says, I can't do this anymore. And so look at what happens in the next part of verse one. He says, there's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines, then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I will escape out of his hand. This is what happens. This is, this is a component of backsliding. When we are no longer feeling like we're able to wait on God, to trust God, to endure our circumstances, to deal with the pressure, to deal with the losses, to deal with the heartbreaks, to deal with the, even the, maybe even the guilt of saying, you know, or the struggle within of saying, God, where are you? I'm trying my best. I don't know why my breakthrough's not coming. There comes a place where we're tempted to say, all right, God's not moving and maybe he's just waiting on me to do something. So let me start making some things happen. Some people get radically depressed and defeated when things get tough. Other people get determined and self-willed. And they're both really difficult places to go. David becomes determined and self-willed. And he says, I'm just going to move to the lands of the Philistines. The Philistines are the chief enemy of God. By the way, they're also a culture that is filled with rampant pagan idolatry. 
worshiping false gods with all sorts of unmentionable immoral practices. So when David's making this decision, mark it down. It's not just David saying like he did before. Remember, David went once before to Gath, but he was by himself. Now he's saying, I'm going to make this decision because I cannot do what I'm doing out here in the wilderness anymore. God's not moving. Saul's not giving up. I've got to make something happen. So gentlemen, get your families, pack your bags. All 600 of us are going down with our families, and we're going to move straight into the enemy territory. Not to fight the enemy, but to live among them. Um, one of the most dangerous components of backsliddenness, especially if, if, if you're an influencer, if you're a head of your household or if you're a, a leader, um, the decisions we make in a backslidden state don't just affect us. They affect all those that are coming behind us or looking to us for, for guidance or leadership. And David is making these monumental decisions. So what does that look like? Well, we're going to go through verses 2 through 7. Let's just let the scriptures speak tonight. In verse 2, this is where David starts getting in action. It says, so David arose, and he went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So first of all, David's now compromising himself. He's compromising his followers. It's very clear that 600 men, some of whom had wives and children, they all have to follow their leader, David, and David goes boldly into the city, says, King Achish, I'm back in town. Um, you know by now that my king in Israel is after me. And David would have had to in some way communicate to Achish, the enemy king, that he is no longer in allegiance to King Saul of Israel. So David has to at least verbalize, I'm betraying my country, and I'm going to ask permission to move in to the city of Gath, which was one of the chief cities of the Philistines. So it's, it's interesting to me that, I don't know why, but Achish had no reservations about welcoming David. So David had to sell it real good. King David's the mightiest warrior in all of the land and everybody knows it. He's got top 40 songs written about him in that day. And so Achish knows that David's one bad dude, you don't wanna mess with him, and he's showing up with about 2,000 people this time, 600 of whom are armed trained soldiers. But whatever sales job David did, it worked. And so in verse 3, it says this, David lived with Achish at Gath. So he didn't just move into the city. He was hobnobbing with the king of the enemies of God's people. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives. Yes, David had two wives, different culture, different city. This is the Bronze Age. Don't read it through a 21st century Western uh, you know, Christian lens, but he had two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail. And so David, David has taken his wives in, in down into this mess too. And his family is now going to be suffering. And that's going to play out maybe in the next message or the one after that. His family has to live with the decisions that David is making. And ultimately, David compromised his integrity. And this is where the spiritual reality starts hitting us. Listen, verse 7. David said to Achish, If I've found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. And listen to this. This is just manipulation. Why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you, O king? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now watch this, verse 7. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. 
So 16 months. So David goes in and he recognizes that he's going to have to live under a great degree of scrutiny if he stays that close to the king. So he comes into the king with this fake humility and he says, oh, I'm your servant. Now, by the way, David had received an anointing and prophetic commission from God. He was, in the eyes and the destiny of, from God, the most powerful man living at that time. And David was the man after God's own heart. And David was the warrior who hated the Philistines when the Philistines were blaspheming David's God when Goliath stood in the valley. David was actually going into the enemy camp, not to conquer, but coming in and declaring, I'm a servant to the enemy. That's the nature of backsliding. The nature of backsliding is you don't lose your true identity, but you compromise it. You act in a way that is inconsistent with your identity, with your God-given destiny, with your callings and who the Lord says you are. And that's exactly what David was doing. And don't forget, the whole thing that started this fire that's now burning was David was afraid of Saul. Fear. When, when people and circumstances become bigger than God, when our internal clock says, I can't wait anymore, I'm tired of waiting on God, I gotta make something happen, and we start acting and leaning onto our own understanding instead of waiting on God to direct our paths, that's what had happened to David. So here he's hitting what would be the first of many rock bottoms. He's literally saying to this pagan, God-defying King Achish, he's saying, I am your servant. Um, there's a lot of different directions I could go with this right now, but let me just it, it kind of expose some of these elements of what backsliding looks like. Once you start down a direction away from God, and listen, it can happen any single day. All it takes is us operating in our flesh for 10 minutes, and a series of events can start that might last 10 years. That's why we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And we're told that the Spirit and the flesh are enemies one against another. And God's not playing around. That literally, if I choose to operate outside of submission and cooperation with the Holy Spirit, if I choose to do that, I can do things that look exactly like the things I used to do when I was unsaved, if I choose to do that. And so it's not enough to come in on a Sunday or a Wednesday and get my groove on and get my, my, my contact high because I'm in the presence of worship and all of that stuff. That's, that's not good enough. I have to be filled with the Spirit on Tuesday, on Thursday. You know, when I'm paying my bills, I need to be filled with the Spirit when I'm counseling or when I'm being rebuked by somebody for something I shouldn't have done or wherever the scenario takes us. We need the Holy Spirit. And what David did in a moment of fear has now, David never said, I think I want to go down and make myself a servant to a pagan king. But that's exactly what step one led to. One of the reasons that Newbridge Church and IHOP Atlanta are committed to the word of God is because we believe the word of God, as it says, is a mirror. That when we hold the word of God up to our lives, we will see what is right and what is wrong. That's never meant to condemn us. It is always meant to help us be able to br be brought into further conformity to the character of Jesus. And so if, you know, we would want somebody to warn us if, if, if something was messed up in our physical, I'm trying to be delicate here, but if, 
if you had something hanging out of your nose, you would want a friend to tell you, right? And or you would want, you would want a mirror. You would, you would look in the mirror and you'd say, God help me, I need to change. You know, you'd, you'd take care of business. I know that's a little bit of a silly thing, but the mirror of the word shows us what's out of place, what's defiled, what's dirty, what's nasty. And, and sometimes we need somebody to say, hey, you need to take a look in the mirror. So when, when, when you're a part of our faith family here, we're not, we don't want to be bullies or anything like that. But, you know, I think one of the most overt acts of lovelessness, lovelessness, is to patronize people and tell them everything's okay no matter what. That's not love. That's deceit. David needed somebody in his life at this point that would say, David, this is going in a bad direction. But he didn't have that. And so he compromised his integrity for a year and, and four months. I'm going to come back to that in, in just a few, uh, a few moments. But here's what's interesting. I'm going to step you back to verse 4. Look at what verse 4 says. They'll put it up on the screen. When it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. David actually accomplished the purpose that he had. What was his deal? I've got to get away from Saul because Saul is, is my torment. And so David concocts this plan to get away from Saul. And although it took him out of the will of God, it eased the immediate burden. That is also part of the complexity of backsliddenness. Most people don't wake up and decide, I really don't like Jesus anymore. I don't want to obey. I'm annoyed with it. I, I'm just done. I'm going to go in an opposite direction. That doesn't happen. Most people make compromises because there's an immediate sensed pressure, struggle, um, conflict, or a circumstance. There's something that drives us to take matters into our own hands. And when we take matters into our own hands, that, that takes us in a direction away from trust, away from faith, away from patience, away from prayer. It, it brings us to a place where we're like, I've got to make things happen for me because God's not making what I want him to make happen for me. And so in essence, we somehow fool ourselves into thinking that whatever I'm facing is significant enough for me to act in a way that's inconsistent with who I am as a follower of Jesus. And David had come to that place. And so um, let's go a little bit further. I, th I, th I think we might get most of this done tonight. So he starts out as a believer who's motivated by fear, but now he's firmly entrenched and he becomes what I call a believer who's mired in falsehood. He's mired in falsehood. That means his boots are stuck in the mud. We used to have a creek. I grew up in Lilburn, and we had a creek behind our house. And um, you know, eight, nine-year-old boys, one of our favorite things to do is when it rained hard and the creek rose, and then the water would subside, it left a bog. I mean, it was nasty. And we would love to just try to jump the creek bed, and it was always funny when the kid who couldn't jump would would not make it and he'd fall into the nasty well one day that kid was me and I remember I I jumped and I didn't fall but I landed short and I hit that 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 bog and it went and I was in up to my knees I could not get out I was mired I was stuck and I remember it was funny for like five minutes 
and then it was like somebody go get my dad because I cannot get out David was in a similar spiritual situation he had made a leap in the flesh and had landed in this mire of falsehood that now he had to live in and so look in verses 8 and 9 this is this is how David started living his life remember it's 16 months it says now David and his men went up and they made raids and I'm going to explain what that means and it tells the people that he made the raids against and they were the inhabitants of the land from of old and mentioned Shur and Egypt and then verse 9 and David would strike the land and would leave neither man or woman alive and he would take away the sheep the oxen the donkeys the camels and the garments and come back to Achish let me unpack this for you so David now has his own little city this little city called Ziklag it's it wouldn't be like a city like you know Buford or Lawrenceville or anything it'd be like podunk town but it was a walled city it had buildings somebody used to live there they were no longer there and so David moved his himself his family and his 600 followers and their families into the city but they had to eat they had to earn a living they had to survive and David determined that he would be a mercenary he would be kind of operating in guerrilla warfare and he would go out not to Israel cities but to the outskirts in the area of the Philistines and he would go in and he would raid these villages and he'd kill everybody. He's, he's murdering. We don't ever talk about this. Now some scholars say, well, he was murdering the pagans and the infidels. I'm going to tell you, God wasn't signing off on this season in David's life. And so he, he goes and he's killing the men and the women, and we're about to find out why, and he's taking all of their stuff. So he, he goes in, he raids a village, he slaughters everybody, he takes the camels, he takes the livestock, and that's food and transportation and goods, he takes their clothing, and he comes back, and he comes back into Ziklag, and we're going to find out in the next verse, when you come back, and you come back with you know, a caravan of livestock and a bunch of goods, you got blood all over you, people are going to take notice. And so David now is going to have to start living a public lie. Verse 10, Achish asked, where did you make your raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, against the Negeb of the whatever, and against the Negeb of the Kenites. Now, what's interesting that doesn't mean anything to me and you, but King Achish would have said, awesome, because all of those territories belong to Israel. So David's literally coming back with all this stuff. He slaughtered these Philistine people on the outskirts, and he's coming back and he's saying, oh, yeah, King Achish, look at all this stuff I got. I just went back to my old hometowns and put it to them. Man, I'm telling you, I wiped out all those Jews over there, my own people, and I got their stuff. And so what he's doing is he's saying by this lie, he's saying, King Achish, you can trust me. King Achish, I'm on your side. That's the nature of a backslidden believer. In his heart, he, know he, can't, he knows he can't go wholesale all out against God, but he also knows he's got to keep the enemy happy. So we call that straddling the fence. You got one foot in the world. You got another foot, presumably, in the kingdom. And so when nobody's looking, you're doing secret things and lying things, when you're under scrutiny, you have to make up a false narrative about who you are and what you're doing. So it's, it's, it's a non-life. It's, it's just like you're not home anywhere. He can't be at peace in Israel because Saul's out to get him. And he can't be at peace in Gath because he knows he doesn't belong there, but he's got to pretend he's one of them. 
And that's the way it works. It's your identity when, when, when you are a, a believer, a follower of Jesus, but you haven't made up your mind that you're going to go all in with Jesus and you're going back and forth between the world and the kingdom. You're not at home in either one. And so that's, that's what David was doing. But not to mention the fact, in order to live this lie, he's killing people. So this, kind of, this is the kind of the part of King David's life they don't teach in Sunday school. <laughs> Bring out the flannel graph. Let's show the murder of the villages. You know, that's not, that's not going to make it in Sunday school with King David's life. And so verse 11 and 12 tells us why he's doing that. Why did David kill everybody? Verse 11, David would leave neither man nor woman alive. Uh, to bring news to Gath. And this is what David was thinking. They'll tell on us and say, David has done this. So in order to cover his tracks, he had to kill all these people. And such was his custom all the while, the whole time he lived in the country of the Philistines. Now look at the result in verse 12. Achish trusted David, thinking he's made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel. Therefore, he will always be my servant. What, what we're not as easily able to see in this is that David is the chief human representative of Yahweh. He's, he's the choice of the God of the Jews to lead the Jews. And David is so far backslidden against his God that he is now viewed by the king of the enemies of God's people. That king views David as one of them. He's like, oh, I love this. He'll never be able to go back to Israel now because he's running these raids and killing them and he's made himself, what, a, what colorful language, an utter stench to his people. And so the king of Gath says, David, the famous Hebrew warrior, David is my servant. And that's what the devil says about every backslidden believer. It is that intense. The devil takes such delight in a Christian truly born again, saved, but a person who's living a compromised life, the devil's like, oh yeah, she used to sing for the glory of Jesus, but now look at her. Oh yeah, she used to teach and preach the word of God to hundreds, but now look where I've got her. Oh yeah, that guy. He has a missionary call on his life, but what he really likes, because I've been working on him, is constant porn. I've got them. They're my servants. I know that's uncomfortable, but we've got to see these things as they are. We've got to recognize that backsliddenness is not simply us breaking some rules. It's far more intense. It's us living a lie outside of the identity that we actually have. And so when that happens, the devil celebrates and the glory of God from our lives is dimmed. doesn't mean God himself is reduced, but the glory that should be coming through our lives is dimmed. And there's not a Christian in the room or that's listening to this after the fact that ever wants that to happen with their lives. But friends, it doesn't happen typically in 20 seconds. It happens incrementally where we begin to live at stage one in our own strength, our own wisdom, our own decisiveness, self-willed, and that leads to the dominoes that begin to fall, and eventually, it's, it's not a stretch to say that they're 
there can be a reality like this for us. Now, I'm quite confident nobody's leaving here and murdering villagers and stealing, but the, the, the fact of the matter is, is it doesn't have to be that dramatic for it to be important. It's really important that we recognize that every, everything that we are, all that we have, um, our lives as followers of Jesus, those who have been forgiven and accepted and, and cleansed and delivered, our lives belong to him. My life is for his glory. And that's just, I'm, I'm not talking about my pulpit ministry, my life. This is the easy, I think I've said this recently, right here is the easiest place for me to be a Christian. It is so easy. I'm doing all of the talking. I know what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not being challenged. I'm not, I'm not struggling in the flesh or anything like that. This is easy. But this is a, a, you know, a microdot compared to the rest of my life. And it's the same way with you. Somebody wisely said, and it's a haunting statement, that who you really are is who you are when nobody's watching. And David, God's watching. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and take us into chapter 28. Y'all still with me? It's not real encouraging, is it? It's not encouraging, but it's healthy. It's helpful. I want to hear this stuff before I move to Ziklag. I, I want somebody to tell me this stuff before I decide that, you know, I can't deal with waiting on God anymore. I, I want to be warned. I, don't, I, I would rather be warned ahead of time than rebuked after the fact. And so that's what this is. And so we get down into verse, uh, chapter number 28. Let me give you something else from chapter 27 in a moment. But this is, this is where David's faithfulness is marred. This, David, David takes on some scars on his testimony right here. His, his faithfulness is marred in chapter 28 and into 29. But, but remember, chapter 27, verse 7 tells us this. The number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So what does that tell you? It tells you he became comfortable living in a backslidden state. He was feeling good while living bad. Correct grammar would be living badly, but sounds better. Living good while feeling bad. He thinks things are fine. Most scholars will tell you there are no psalms attributed to David during this time period. He's not hearing from God. He's not, he's not worshiping. You, you don't find him praying at all. Not, he, there's, his prayer life's gone. His worship life's gone. His ministry is gone. But he's comfortable. He's comfortable enough to, to, to wake up month after month for 16 months and say, I guess this is okay. I mean, I'm, I'm killing me some Philistines kind of under the radar. Maybe I think God likes that. I'm still doing my part. I know I'm not exactly who I should be, but, you know, I'm, I'm taking care of these infidels out here. And he's rationalizing in his heart that all of the bad that he's doing is outweighed because, you know, well, God knows, God knows his heart. So it, I don't do counseling anymore, but I've done so much counseling with people that have, have entered into that backslidden state, it is amazing how we can deceive ourselves. It is stunning to me that how we can end up in an abysmal place and then later justify how we got there or worse yet, blame others for how we got there. Can I be, I'm, I'm just gonna treat us like adults. We've gotta take ownership over our junk. This is, time is too short to keep blaming whoever for whatever. We've got to take ownership. If, if I'm not living the life that God's called me to live, if I'm not being the man that God's called me to be, I got nobody to blame. That's on me. 
So, well, Jeff, people are challenged and people are, you know, disadvantaged and there's difficulty and this one went through this and this one went through this. I get that. We live in a sin-cursed world. We're all living in the same environments. But listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, greater is the one in you than the one that is in the world. So that means whatever comes against us, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, there's no testing or temptation that has taken you except that which is common to all people. And God will not tempt you or test you above what you are able, but will with the testing make a way of escape so that you can bear it. And so in other words, anything that finds me, the biblical lens says, the God in me is greater than whatever's coming against me. Therefore, I have a way of victory. I have a way of escape. And yet we live in such a blame culture now that everybody feels like they can live at, at an abysmal level of life and they'll just find nine people to blame and they think that that's okay. That all falls apart when we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat. And we're like, yeah, Lord, you know, my parents split up. Mine did. My mom left us. Uh, Lord, I, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have a mentor. Uh, Lord, um, somebody introduced me to drugs at age... 14 and it was their fault if that person I and, and the Lord's gonna look at me and say I love you Jeff but do you remember that day I saved you oh yeah I remember that Lord okay so when I saved you I came to live in you and all the stuff that happened to you before your salvation and everything that happened to you after your salvation I told you I would give you breakthrough if you would keep looking to me and what, what the Lord will say, and I don't know that that's an actual conversation that happens, but that's the reality. Basically, what I'm saying is there's no excuses. So David was living with these lies, and he did it for a year and four months. That's a long time for a believer to ignore God. And so because of this, this is what's awesome. God decides that uh, 16 months is long enough. David didn't decide it, but God in his mercy, we're going to find out, decides it. And so verse, chapter 28, in, in those days, these will be up on the screen, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war. Oh, it's wartime. Who are they going to fight? To fight against Israel. David's people. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. In other words, David, get your 600 dudes. You're going to fight on the Philistines against your people Israel. David said to Achish, um, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. David's like, bring it on. Yeah, he's faking it until he makes it. Here he goes. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So David gets thrust into the situation that is going to remove all of his self-created comfort. The lie has now come crashing down. David can't hide out anymore. He's about to be pushed into a situation, a conflict, that's going to force him to choose, am I a, a citizen of the Philistines or am I a citizen of Israel? And so we move down into verse, chapter number 29. It's a long story, so I'm condensing it. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. So it is day, the day of right before the war. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing by, uh, passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. Stop there for a second. So ancient warfare, all of the armies, it's all hand-to-hand -hand combat. You, you, don't, you, you might have some, some archery, but it's mostly hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
And so you got the army of the Philistines, and they've declared war, full-scale war against Israel. And so all of their army is over here, and on the other side, Israel's got to start getting into a defensive array. The, here comes the war. They can't choose not to fight. And so it's Achish, and look at where the Bible says David is. David puts himself way back in the back. He's doing everything he can do to avoid the conflict that's going to force him to choose. It's such a good picture of the way things work when we're not where we should be with the Lord. We'll put it off, we'll put it off, we'll put it off, we'll put it off. We convince ourselves that things are okay, we're surviving, we're getting by, we're raiding the villages, we got their camels, I'm okay, I've got, I'm building a nice little 16-month-old home life here, Saul can't find me, the, the main problem that I was running from has gone away, but now I'm just living a lie, but that's okay until the day of warfare comes. And so there they are, Israel over here, Achish over here. Now, one of the noteworthy things it said was, the lords of the Philistines, that means like the main players in the Philistine army and their, their community, they're passing by with all of the soldiers that are attached to them. So let's get down. I am going to finish this. Hallelujah. I am going to finish this. Here's where we see God give David mercy that he doesn't deserve. This is beautiful. Thank you, Lord, for not only doing this for David, but for having done this for me, having done this for maybe you out there. That when we're at our worst, when we haven't been faithful, when we haven't been honorable, when we've backslidden, when we're not operating in the identity that God has us, my religion early on in life trained me that run from God because if he finds you, he's going to pound you into smithereens. And so I lived so long in guilt and shame prior to coming to Christ on the run from a God that I knew was just furious and angry. And if he ever got me, he was going to kill me. So I ran and ran and ran. Problem was, is that's, that's not who God is. Because when I couldn't run anymore and I finally had to wave the, you know, the white flag of surrender, he didn't kill me. He embraced me, he saved me, he forgave me, and he loved me. And he made me his son. And I would love to say that that's the last time that he ever had to come and find me when I was in the far country. But that's not true. I, I don't have anything to compare with what David did, but that doesn't matter to me. I know seasons in my own life as a follower of Jesus where I haven't been the man that I could have been or should have been and even in those moments I'm thinking oh man if I ever really get my act together God's going to be so mad at me as if like you're going to come to the Lord and say Lord you may not have noticed but I haven't really been and God be like oh, I didn't know I'm so furious with you that's it's ridiculous he's always operating in mercy towards us so look at what it looks like in David's life, uh, life. So here's where it gets interesting. The unbelievers discerned about David what David couldn't discern about David. Let me read it to you. It's kind of long. But the commanders of the Philistines said, they're talking to their king, what are these Hebrews doing here? What are David and his men doing here? Achish said to the commanders, the military commanders, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, wow, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the, to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord, to Saul? 
Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This is stunning. So as it's just about go time. The, these commanders are like, we're fighting the Jews. David is a Jew. He's got 600 Jews with him. Hey, King Achish, this, one of these things is not like the other. This guy does not belong in our army. And I got a feeling, King, if you don't kick him out, that when we start fighting, David will show that he's been loyal to his people the whole time, and he's going to turn his men against us. Uh, King Achish, we won't fight this battle unless you send David and his men back home. Why is that important? Because the enemy knew David didn't belong down there, but David didn't know it. That's what's stunning. The, the enemy had a greater sense of the wrongness of the situation than David did. David's heart had grown so numb that he felt like he could fit in, even to the extent that King Achish says, this guy's my best friend. We love David. David's been here for a year and four months. He's a deserter. Even the enemy could tell that David was a misfit and a deserter. That's real quick here. In extreme cases of backsliddenness when you try to join yourself to the world. And if you're truly saved, whoever you're trying to join yourself with, they know you don't fit. They'll see it before you see it. And they'll say stuff like, aren't, aren't you a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a Jew. Why, why are you doing this? Why are you getting drunk? Why are you getting high? Why are you sleeping around? Why are you cursing? Why are you, why are you, why are you acting like one of us? You're not one of us. And all of a sudden, the duplicity is exposed. And you're like, oh, yeah, I had conveniently forgotten that I'm not one of you. And now I can't be comfortable here, but I can't go back home. So what is God going to do? God's being merciful to David right now because my question is this, and we'll never know the answer. What if those army commanders hadn't kicked David out? Would David have gone up to war and killed his own kinsmen fighting with the Philistines? We'll never know. So David had lived to appease the enemies of God. This is what his lifestyle declared. Achish calls David. I think this will be up on the screen, verse 6 of chapter 29. David is called by Achish. Achish said to him, as the Lord lives, you've been honest. What a joke. And it's, to me, it seems right that you should march out with me in the campaign, for I've found nothing wrong with you from the day of your coming to me to this day. That shows you how compromised he is. Achish is saying, yeah, I, I kind of considered you one of us. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So David had lived in such a way that he was appeasing the enemies of God to the extent where King Achish said, yeah, I feel like you're just one of us. We'll go a little bit further, verses 7 and 8. Achish says to David, so go back now, go peaceably, that you may not displease the Lord of the Philistines. And I don't, I don't know if this is more fakery or if David's serious. David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant? He's speaking of himself. From the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight with you against the enemies of my Lord the King. So I'm sitting here thinking, is he that backslidden? I'm choosing to believe that David was faking it right there. I can't think that David would say, please let me go and fight your enemies. I hope not. But that's the thing about backslidden folks. You really never know what's going on in their heart. 
And so we don't know what David was doing there, but it didn't work because God's showing him mercy. And so Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. David, you're an angel. You're awesome. You're the best thing that ever happened to us, the Philistines. That's where his backslidness took him. And so the final verse. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us in the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So the war was going to happen, but David and his crew had to go home. Now let me just tell you something here, and this will lead to next week's message. I can't believe we got this done. David still hadn't repented. David got rescued by the mercy of God, but David still hadn't repented. He went right back to his city of lies. So here's a little, in the next episode of the life of King David, God had prevented David from making, for lack of a better phrase, the unpardonable sin of going over and slaughtering Israel. God had prevented that from happening. David still hasn't repented. God still has to bring David to repentance. What was David living for at this time? Self. David was living for self. Self, preservation, protection, and promotion had become David's God. So you know what God does when there's a rival God in our lives? He takes that God down. David himself was going to have to be taken down in order for David to ever hope to repent. That's next time. Amen? All right, let's stand to our feet. Woo, 15 minutes earlier than normal? Wow. What happened? Listen, if you're here tonight, um, well, you are here tonight. <laughs> Amazing grasp of the obvious. Let's, let, let's just, let's, let's take a moment and just, um, let's think personally on this stuff. Don't leave here accused tonight. If you're not where you know you could be or should be, the intention of the Lord was not to send this message to accuse you and shame you and drive you further away. The intention of the Lord was to hold up the mirror and say, hey, can, can you look into this? I want you to see what I see because I love you. And you're my daughter and you're my son. And I have amazing plans, always have for you. And you're not on the pathway that will lead you to those, those places I have designed for you. So I'm, I'm bringing you just a warning. And my child, I'm saying to you, the way you've been going is the wrong way. And I, I, I love you. So I'm calling you to come back. I've prevented so much from you uh, from you entering into, I've prevented that in my mercy. And I'm, I'm calling you right now to turn from whatever, whoever, only, only we could know that, only it's between you and God. But I'm, I'm calling you to turn from that thing that you've turned to. And I'm calling you back to myself and you will find me with gracious arms dripping with the oil of welcome. 
come back to me tonight. And this is what you do. It's, it's a word that we use a lot in church. It's called repentance. And it means you let your mind be changed and then you bring your heart into alignment and you say, I will turn and I will trust God with all of it. With my failures, my sins, but also the thing that maybe I was running from. Lord, I'm going to come back and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to promise you. When you do that, you will begin to experience a restoration of peace, joy. You'll start sensing the presence of the Lord again. If there's a stronghold in your life, a sinful stronghold, you get raw and honest with him about it first. You repent. And then you find somebody that you can trust. And you say, here's what I'm struggling with. Make sure it's a godly person that's not going to air your dirty laundry. And you say, I need help with this issue. Friends, time is too short for us to be sliding any further back. The Lord will make all grace abound towards you that when you make the decision that, Lord, that path I've been on has led me to a place I never wanted to go and I'm done. I don't know how I'm going to get back to where I need to be, but I know, Lord, that you're the father who ran across the hills to the prodigal son when he was covered in his mess from living in the far country. If you will do that in that parable, Lord, I know you'll do it for me. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that the mercy that you showed to David is also available to us, and we need it. And, Lord, while we may not be in the situation that David was in, we don't want to move five feet in the bad direction away from you. And so we say tonight, Lord, hold the mirror up to our hearts. Silence the accusing, condemning voice. Silence the devil, Lord. We don't want to hear his accusation or condemnation, but we welcome the voice of conviction from the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we know that conviction comes with an invitation to restoration. So Lord, we say, you have our hearts You've caught our attention tonight. Bring us to that place of repentance. Now that we're there, we say yes, and we trust you to help us. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.